A few months ago, I sent an email. I don't normally reach out to potential podcast guests myself, but this one felt very personal. The email was to Ryan Holiday, and I was writing him about his book, The Obstacle is the Way. The Obstacle is the Way was hugely helpful for me during one of the hardest periods of my life. And the knowledge that I gained from that book, the perspective I gained from that book, the deep dive into Stoic thinking and Stoic philosophy and the idea that the biggest challenge you're facing in your life right now is actually the answer to the thing you're trying to figure out. Basically, if you can figure out how to solve the obstacle, you now have a whole new set of tools and resources and muscles and information and all kinds of things you didn't have before. The obstacle is literally the way you become the next great version of yourself. So I loved this book and I sent an email to Ryan and I was like, I gotta have you on the show. We've gotta have a conversation. I really want the audience to get to meet you and to hear some of these ideas. And I had the opportunity recently to drive out to Ryan's bookstore and we sat down for a very long conversation. In fact, the conversation was so long that we originally split it into parts. I was going to post one part of our episode and he was going to post the other on his podcast. And in fact, if you are coming to this episode as one of Ryan's listeners, you're going to find the continuation of the conversation at about 55 minutes into this chat. But if you're my crew and you haven't heard any of this before, I'm going to play the episode in its entirety. It's a long but it's good. We talk about everything. And I think you'll find it fascinating. I hope you'll find it helpful. And I hope that it encourages you to go get the book that was so helpful to me. The Obstacle is the Way. This is The Conversation with Ryan Holiday. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast, I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. All right, well, where should we start? Wherever. I all usually right. just chat about okay. anything. Let's start with, is that a real Grammy? That is a real-ish Grammy. Okay. I did win a Grammy. Stop. For, <laughs> for what? Well, so some authors win them for yes, reading know. your audiobook. Um, it's my only chance at an EGOT. It was it was uh, certainly one of what I thought was my only chance. But no, a friend of mine produced a jazz album, and he was like, "Hey, I need help with like the liner notes and um, writing all the the stuff." And so I helped him with that. 
it was an instrumental jazz album, which I know literally nothing about. I just helped him with the liner notes. And then... What are liner notes? Like the, you know, like in a... Remember CDs? Oh, yeah. Like all this, the text yes. that would come with the thing? This is cool album. It's called um, Presidential Suite. And it's a bunch of the great presidential speeches of all time uh, set to jazz music. Cool. So there's like writing involved and like how the... Anyways, I, I worked on that. So I was a producer on the album with like 20 other producers. Uh, and then Grammys are actually... About as I came to understand the Grammys are about as political and uh, um, insidery as the the bestseller list. One hundred percent. Except for the bestseller list is to a certain degree just like here's who here's who sold the most copies and then here's who we chose among the ones. Yeah. This is like this process of voters. So like you campaign to to be nominated and then you campaign to win. So anyways. It was this whole campaign to do it, and then we ended up getting nominated and then winning. So I'm a producer on a Grammy award uh, on a Grammy award winning album, uh, but like I did get to go on stage and accept a Grammy at the Grammys. But there's what year was this? This was sixteen or no, this is 2017. Uh, and uh, so it's two crazy. things I two things I learned. Number one is there's actually two Grammys. There's the Grammys that you see on TV, right. which like Adele wins or yes. Kanye, you know, steals it from Taylor Swift or whatever. There's yes. that where they, which I also attended, they give out like 10 Grammys at the Grammy Awards that are at the Staples Center. And then there's another theater next to the Staples Center called the Nokia Theater. That's what it was then. And that's where they give out like hundreds or thousands of Grammys for like best women's country album with... Uh, harmonica like all these categories <laughs> that you would never have thought of existing but are music right yeah. like who do they give best album cover design to they don't do that on tv it's uh, best heavy they they haven't announced best heavy metal album on tv on the tv grammys for 30 years but that's still a real category so there was that there was like 50 people in the audience and we just went up one after another and accepted our grammys and then the other funny thing was they only give one Grammy. Yes, this is, this is what I'm wondering. Do you like file a petition later? So they were get... like, if you know, one of you gets to keep the Grammy, and there was like 20 of us, and then they were like, the rest of you can fill out this form, and they'll send you like, we'll send you like a certificate. And I was like, fuck that. Yeah, I'm gonna make my own Grammy. So it says Ryan Holiday, uh, best large jazz ensemble album 2017, and then I wrote, uh, when you die, this will go in the trash alongside all your other accomplishments. <laughs> So that's my crap. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I This was the first time that I thought, oh, there's a way, like, if you touch something, you can file for It's like a Super Bowl ring. Like, you can also get it. But you personally made that. Yes. And actually, I also got, uh, I have not a Super Bowl ring, but I worked, with, <laughs> I worked with the Rams. Uh, and they sent me, like, so all the players get a ring, right, that are on the team. And then there's, like, the the outer circle of people who get like who can get a, a ring like they probably give one i remember i was riding one time in the elevator at a spurs game and uh the elevator guy had a a, a championship ring Stop. on and i said how did you get that and they were like he was like the spurs are the greatest organization in the world they gave a ring to every single person who worked for the team that's so rad which is like how you get the culture of like a championship organization so anyway there's that ring and then there's an out then there's an outer circle beyond that where they're like, you were nice or like, we like your stuff. And they gave me like a giant novelty. Um, Do you wear it? Uh, 
No, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's like a paperweight version oh, of the Super oh, Bowl ring. Oh, okay. Uh, so well, I, I mean, you could still wear that. So I don't have a Super Bowl ring, but I have a novelty, uh, like, participation yeah. Super Bowl. It sounds like a theme. Yes, I should put it, <laughs> I should put it here also. <laughs> what a life you've had. It's been weird. It's certainly not what you think when, like, I don't know about you, but you're like, I want to write about X. And then you're like, maybe it'll do this. And then whatever, it would be pre- it would be preposterous to have assumed that X plus all these other things would happen. A hundred percent. And you'd have to have been a deranged egomaniac to think that even that was in the realm of possibility, which is actually something I really don't like about success stories is I think people very disingenuously, like it's not even they take credit for it, but they act as if that was the plan all along, which I think is very intimidating to people um, who would be, who would not only relate more, but be more inspired if they knew that like, actually you're just trying to do this one thing and that set in motion all these other things. Right. And so like, yeah, I, like I wanted to write a book about ancient philosophy and then I'm getting a Grammy or a <laughs> novelty Super Bowl ring. That's to have thought that those things were connected would have been a preposterous like ability to see in the future and an, an entitlement too. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think the more I do this work of interviewing people, the more I find this through line in that it doesn't matter what they do, whether it's an actor or a writer or athlete. It always, to me, sounds like they're really interested in something. Yeah. They started working toward a goal that they had, but along the way, when opportunity was presented, they were like, yeah, I'll I'll try. I'll sort of see where this goes. Nobody has ever sat down. I don't know if you find this too. Like, it's never a linear path. It's always like, I went here and then I went here and then I did a backflip and then I ended up over in this place because I think we all could have an idea of where we want to end up. And if you're too rigid about it needing to be that exact thing, you're going to, I don't know, I feel like I would have failed too much to keep going. Well, I think that's true. And then the other thing that happens is then afterwards we go, actually, no, that this is what I was trying to do the whole time. And then we don't actually realize how that closes doors in the future. Like Ego's the enemy. I was telling the story about Google. Like Google starts as like a PhD thesis and then like they thought maybe it would work as a company and then it became this thing. YouTube was like a dating app that turned into a video thing that people thought was a terrible acquisition. Gmail was this small internal, like all their big things were actually somewhat accidental or serendipitous or just started small and became something huge. So for Google to then go like, no, we're this world changing group of visionaries who like conceive vastly into the future. That actually makes you make worse decisions in the present because you have given yourself a kind of sight that you don't have. And you've also given yourself like some sense of your capacity or your genius that's also not there. If you if you said, hey, we're a company that takes little bets and some of those bets work and some of those don't, that's actually what you should continue doing in the future. That's a recipe for success. If you're like, no, 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 we're the visionaries who can predict the future, then you're like, oh, let's spend a billion dollars on Google Glass or let's spend a billion dollars on this. And and then then you're like stunned when it doesn't work. Those ideas might have been good, actually. But if you and if you'd started smaller and been less arrogant or utopian about it, you might have actually done 
better. Yeah. And so I thought I was going to write a book about ancient philosophy that would matter to people in business. And then it ended up resonating all these different, but I try to go back and go like, I really had no idea. And I try to remember that I don't have really any idea. So then when I'm sitting down to doing the next book, I'm like, I hope it'll do this. I'm not like, I know exactly what everyone wants and I'm always right. Yeah, I think that we, especially as creators, if you are working with that end goal in mind, I feel like you're playing to whatever you believe the trends are, yes. which never works. Yes. So after Girl, Wash Your Face explodes and all of a sudden it's everyone's like, how did you? I'm sure they did yeah. the same thing to of you. Course. Like, how did you do this? How did you know? I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. I literally just did what I was always doing. And for some reason, at that exact moment in time, it was the right place, right time, and it exploded. Yes. And I don't ever believe that's possible for me again. If it happens, amazing. But I'm not betting on that. Yeah. I just sort of kept showing up, kept doing the work, which is, I think, what a lot of authors do. We plug away, and you know us for one or two pieces, mm -hmm. when really there were 50 others that you've never heard of or cared about. Well, isn't that like, that's, I think, something people miss from yours is uh, they think that that was your first book, but it was not even close. No, right? it was my sixth. How, okay. So that's, but that's a radically different story, right? It's yeah. like woman writes book and it blows up and now she's this huge author. It's very different than woman writes five books. They all do not Nobody enough that cares. you even know about them. <laughs> and then the sixth one blows mm -hmm. up. Like one is, uh, first off, a much more relatable story. One's a much more honest story. And one also actually asks a lot more of people, right? Everyone thinks their first book is going to crush or their first thing is going to crush. And it does for 1% of people. Right. But for the vast majority of people, it's a much longer, slower burn than that. I always feel worried for anyone who has a success on their first go. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a musical artist or someone who goes viral or because you believe that that's the path. Yeah. You didn't have to like crawl through the desert. Yes. You didn't have to keep going when nobody cared, when nobody came to your book signing. You don't sort of have that muscle. Mm -hmm. And so when inevitably you put something out and it doesn't work, I feel like that ends up being your end. Well, that happens on social media, I think, even more. Because like it's hard to do a book and it's hard to do a book. Well, ultimately, if your book succeeds... It has something in it that like people thought was worth purchasing with money, which is a pretty high thing to get yeah. over. Whereas like if you're someone that suddenly has a lot of social media followers, some of those people are talented, but it's also very possible to not be talented, right? And and so like if you're someone who was, let's say, on a social network early and you blew up there, you can tell yourself this story that like you blew up because you're super talented, you do all this amazing stuff, whatever, and what you're what this is actually preventing you from is developing any sort of objective base of skills or competency that will work in other mediums. Like I was talking to my son about this, who's he's just starting jujitsu. And I was like, it's actually good that you're smaller and younger than all the other kids in the class. because You're gonna have to actually figure out how to get good at it. Yeah. Whereas if you were bigger and stronger and heavier, you would be able to coast on just your natural advantages or the 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 mismatch. And I think that happens on social media a lot, where people were the one of the early people on TikTok. Now they have millions of followers. They don't. There's no there there because they were just gifted a huge audience and. 
I'm not jealous. I'm just saying that that's going to be hard to translate to the other things that you want to do because you're not learning how to do a thing. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. What are your thoughts on social today? Because, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you come from a marketing background. Mm -hmm. I actually think the first book I read of yours was a marketing book, right? It wasn't? Yeah. What, maybe social media, like it wasn't stoicism at all. No. I mean, I wrote like a critique of online marketing in 2011. Yeah, so which I probably I've, read. I've been doing I, this a long yeah. time. Uh, yeah, I, I do have a marketing background and I do think all the platforms are important and you have to figure out how they work and how to spread your ideas on them or you, you know, very few, there are very few people who are not sort of legacy acts that can just only do their right. thing, right? Right. That... And if you think you're one of those people, you're probably not one of those people, right? Um, very few people get to be Cormac McCarthy, who write, you know, a novel every 30 years. It's world news, and they don't do a single promotional thing for it, and it's just huge. Like, that's that's not happening anymore. Yeah. That's gone. So I think you have to figure out all the platforms, and you have to spread your work on them, and this is where people discover things. That being said, you have to find a way, I think, to create as much distance between you, the person, and those um, those platforms if you want to remain good at what you do. What does your relationship with social look like? Like day to day, are you actually doing it or someone else does? Uh, yeah, someone else is doing it. Yeah. I don't even have any of the apps like on my oh, phone. Oh, wow. So you don't consume it at all? I mean, I do. Like uh, I my wife and I watch Instagram reels and I am on it as a regular person sometimes. Um, but I have no access to being me on the platforms. Do you ever worry about that? What do you mean? That someone else posts on your behalf, says the wrong thing. Yeah, I guess. And then you get in trouble, even though it wasn't you. I approve most of the stuff. Like I make the stuff, but I don't, I'm, I'm not like, uh, give me the likes, you know, like it's not going into my brain. <laughs> right. And I think that's the, I've just, you know what audience capture is? Mm. So audience capture, I mean, there's different ways to think about it, but this happens most often like politically, like someone will take some sort of 
like controversial stand, right? Like it's maybe maybe right wing or left wing, and then a bunch of people will not like them for that thing, and then a bunch of people will like them for that thing, right. and then the people that like them for that thing, those are their people now. Okay. So they just tell those people what's happening over and over. Russell Brand is a great example of this. Like yeah. Russell Brand went from this like funny comedian to this sort of enlightened spiritual guy to a straight up crazy person, conspiracy theorist. Like he posted a picture of him and Donald Trump Jr. the other day. And you're like, really? Whoa, how did you get from here to there? Whoa. And you're like, oh, the algorithm took you by the hand and guided you over there. Especially if you're somewhat skeptical or contrarian, or if you have some sort of grudge, like if you've been put on the outside a little bit, you go, this is the only place. Like, I think naturally as a creator, if you're not careful, you go to where there is traction or heat, right? And and so you just end up playing in a space and at a certain point, that just becomes right. who you are. Well, my new thing, and this has been the most freeing decision I have made. I have been on social since the beginning. Yeah, sure. Since, like everybody, right? Mm -hmm. I had a blog and so I would post and like little recipes, whatever. About a month ago, I made the decision to no longer allow comments mm -hmm. and no longer see like counts. Oh. And I had, I don't post that often. Um, I posted more to talk about the podcast, like when I'm really proud of the work, we have a great guest, sure. Ryan Holiday's on, holy crap, you guys. Uh -huh. um, I will post about that. But above and beyond, I found that I am a better creator, I'm a better human, better mom, centered all the things that we want to be when I am not. Yes. on that. And I won't allow anyone else to post on my behalf. So if mm. I want to talk about my work, it has to be me. That being said, I, I know there's such opposing opinions on this. But for me, I'm, I'm just tired of giving my platform to people in comments who are just it's bananas what they're they're not even writing about me they're just writing crazy stuff or they're fighting with other people or whatever so i made this decision i'm like i'm just not going to allow comments anymore and it's the most freeing thing because i don't care how the post does i have not cared about that in forever sure. but it allows me to show up as myself messy real here is this thing if you like it great and if you don't that is fine too but I just don't want to buy into this idea because I am I am not strong enough. If I see something like, oh hell, they liked that outfit, yeah. gotta do more outfit of the day mm -hmm. posts. And I don't wanna I don't wanna create in that way. Yeah, I, I think it's it's um it's not healthy data. It's yeah. not things you would want to know, but you can get really granular data on it. You just, you it's better not to know. So for for the Daily Stoke, I send out an email every day to 600,000 people. And then I send another, I, so I do two emails. I do Daily Dad, which is 600, and Daily daily Stoke, which is like 600, and Daily Dad, which is like 100. So every day I write this thing. And it's an email. So you can reply to the email. Oh, wow. And I had to make a pretty conscious decision relatively early, because the numbers started small, but they got big quickly. I had to make this decision um, of basically like, do I want these people to have direct access back to me? Or is this a one-way conversation? And I just found that knowing what people thought of it did not make me better at doing it. It did not make me happier as a person. And actually it made me, it made me less likely to say what I actually thought or what I thought was important. Yeah. 
because no, like it's not healthy for a creator to know, hey, um, this thing that you just wrote about that you thought was important or heartfelt, it just cost you X amount of money because this many people left, this many people unsubscribed, this many people told you they would never buy something from you again. And I wanted to write without fear or favor. And you can't do that if you're bombarded with with data in that in that way. And so I, I've, I've decided not to have that information. Does it mean sometimes I may, might get something more wrong that like I might have got sure, but it, it mostly makes me able to just say what I think. I think the question for every creator is like, do you own the audience or does the audience own you? Ooh, <laughs> shit. And, and I think algorithmically and when you're looking at the data, it's very easy for the audience to own you because you are, you're trying to like surf this wave. And, and I, sometimes like people will, they'll, they'll manage and, and I can tell it's like, oh man, I must've gotten a lot of negative emails about this because they found my actual email and they forwarded me today's email and are commenting. And I can see that they emailed this address and it didn't work. And this address, wow. they, they, they were like trying all, they were knocking on all these different doors until they found the one that I was in to be like, listen here, you piece of shit. You know, that's what they do. Do you ever think like, if you applied this energy to your own life, to your own, if you hate my content, go make what you think is good. Go sure. put it out into the world. Like if you just applied your hatred yes. of someone to your own life or your own work, I just feel like everything would explode for you in the most positive way. Well, the funny thing is it's almost never something I said. It's something that they heard, right? Ooh. It's it's like, uh, I didn't come out and say, all these people are criminals and deserve to be in jail. It's like, I made an offhanded remark and they inferred yes. this thing yes. that clearly they already feel like guilty right. about or whatever. So, but I'll get those and... I just think, wow, if I had gotten 500 of these, that would have had the effect of intimidating me or making, or, uh, I think what you also realize like really crazy people is like, the point is to raise the cost just enough on the person to make them go, this is not worth it. You're so right. And so I, I try, I try to keep that space because I think it's, I think it's really like, and I've sometimes when they do, uh, they'll be like, why did you have to say this? You know, um, didn't you know you would, you know, in, piss off this person? This and I, and group, yeah. I say something like, look, I didn't get, I didn't work really hard to build up this audience to then not say what I think. Yeah. And that's kind of how I think about it from a career perspective is like the purpose of succeeding as a writer, of getting to some means of financial independence or security or confidence or whatever it is, it should not be to then be terrified of losing it so you are not yourself. Yeah. Gosh, that's so good. When you say, you know, the idea of like, it's not what I said, it's what they heard. Yes. It reminds me of this thing that I have um, chewed on and processed for years now, which is apologizing for the impact yes. versus the actual intent. Yes. Or the idea that your intent can have a very different impact than you than you intended, right? Totally. But then I had always sort of been taught that coming up in building a business through social media was you have to apologize for the impact. Yes. But then at the same time, somewhere along the way, I started taking the impact 
and flipping it and believing that that was my intent when it wasn't. So allowing someone else to say, well, I was offended when you said this, and I'm such a people pleaser by nature and such a good girl that I'm like, holy shit, I have offended, and I... I can't believe I've done this. I can't. And it took a lot of therapy to get to the other side and come back to, wait a minute. That wasn't what I was saying. That that actually isn't even what I said. Yeah. But I've lo- been taught to apologize for what you heard. Yeah. And at some point then, as a writer, as a creator, I have lost my voice because I'm too afraid to talk about anything. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way, as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Well, I think, so I have two, two thoughts here. So number one is, I think, something that people get wrong about stoicism is like stoicism is like focus on what you control. You don't control other people. So if you offend someone, it's like their problem, right? This is like, I think a very male take on stoicism that I (laughs) dislike, right? Going around, not giving a shit about other people or the consequences of your actions or the impact of your words 
that's not cool, yeah. right? And so I think some people, like, uh, uh, there might be some take on stoicism where, like, political correctness is bullshit. Like, don't don't worry about these snowflakes. Just do whatever, do and say whatever you think. I think that's totally missing it because yeah. um, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. And, I, and I, I actively try not to hurt people's feelings. I don't build my entire life around not doing it, but I do try to take it into account. And if someone comes to me and says, I've been negatively affected by something you you did or said, I take that and I go, well, was that, did I mean to do that? How, is this, is what I said important to me? And if it's not important to me, then I'm definitely gonna be very quick to apologize because it was not only un, unintentional, but like I was just being thoughtless and you've actually helped me to be a bit more thoughtful about yeah. that thing. So I'm gonna take that. But I think what you're saying that is important is that just because you made someone feel shitty doesn't mean that you are a piece of shit. Yes. Because there could be so many things between you and them that contributed to that ultimate feeling that you can't possibly put on yourself. And so I, I, I think it's a balance. It's like someone gets upset. You're like, you know, sometimes, I'll, again, I'll have just thrown off something offhand. I won't. I didn't really think about who's on the other side of this. And now that I have thought about it, I don't like that I said it and I won't say it in the future. There's other times where I said what I said and I mean it. And if that offends you, um, maybe you should maybe you should think about what I'm saying here yeah. <laughs> because I have a point. And then the other thing I was going to say that I think the other way to think about it is where it's challenged me as a person is maybe you've noticed this with your parents, but like you talk about something from your childhood and they take that as like a criticism of them as a person. And they're like, that didn't happen, or that's not true, or you're so sensitive, right? They're trying to argue with you about your feelings. And there's nothing more infuriating than someone trying to argue away the existence of something you feel. And so that's something I try to think about with my kids is like, if, if they say something, or they say they don't like something that I did, I can't be so sensitive that like I have to deny the truth of that rather than going, your feelings are your feelings. I know who I am. I know what I was intending. I didn't mean to hurt you. So I'm not like racked with guilt, but I do want to make you feel better. And I do want to not make you feel that way in the yeah. future. Well, and I think that's a huge piece of maturity for me as I get older is that we all are allowed to our own feelings yes. about the situation. Yes. And the separation of that is yeah. an emotional boundary yeah. of you get to feel this way and I get to feel this way and not take on each other's feelings of what this experience was for us. Yes. And you're just never going to win arguing with that person about how they don't actually feel that way or it's not fair for them to feel that yeah. way. Or it's hurting you that they feel that way. And just be like, oh, okay, you feel this way. I didn't mean for you to feel this way. So let's like talk about that. Yeah. Right. And yeah, yeah I think we're talking we're talking about boundaries, we're talking about awareness, we're talking about empathy. These are all things that are hard under normal circumstances. And I think they're really hard if you didn't have that modeled for you or you had the opposite of that. And so when you think about why people get so mad on social media. Well, that's most people. Right, right. <laughs> I actually was just talking about this in an episode recently that when we understand what emotional boundaries are and we try and put them in place in our life, there's a very strong chance you're trying to put up an emotional boundary which with someone who does not have any experience in it. Yes. Right? Your mother-in-law, your dad, your partner. 
if they knew about that, you wouldn't be in this situation. Sure, they would, the boundary would go unset. Right. So it's already a ton on your shoulders to try and establish the emotional boundary and hold it strong, especially in the face of a person who is super unfamiliar with what that is. It's going to feel like an attack. It's going to, it's going to push every button that they have, which is why this boundary doesn't exist already. Yeah, and it's it's really hard. I'm going through some version of that myself where it's like you put up the boundary and you hope the person's like, oh, that's what it takes for me to stay in your life. Got it. We'll respect it. But that's not usually what happens. Yeah. And usually they go, well, then fuck you. I'm out. And you have to sit with that. And then there's a part of you that goes, no, 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 no. What? Like, and then you're back to violating the own boundary. Right. And so I think just understanding that like when you draw a boundary, there is a good chance that uh, the person's going to go in the other direction. And that's going to be sad, but that's also kind of what you want or you wouldn't have thought the boundary was necessary, necessary in the first place. Yeah, 100%. How did you come to the wisdom that we know you for today? Like, did you grow up with this information or you found it as you? <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, I think I, I think the reason I found it and it struck me so much, uh, when I read meditations at like 19 years old in my college apartment, sitting at a table like this, it was, it was like, holy shit, where is this? You know, like this wasn't what they talked about in church. This wasn't what my parents talked about. This isn't what my friends' parents talked about. This isn't what they talked about in school. It was like, oh, there's people who have thought really hard about being good at life and being a good person in life that doesn't have, you know, notions of sin attached or hell attached or because I fucking said so attached or, you know, like you're such a disappointment to us. Like there was none of that. It was just like, hey, this is the journey that people have been on for a long time. And I think it just struck me because it was so different than what I had, what, not only than what I had gotten, but it was what I was looking for. And so um, I wouldn't say I had that wisdom. I would say I'm good at explaining and talking about and connecting that wisdom to other things. That's what I feel like I do. Like, I feel like the conversation that I'm having about stoicism in my work is um, not from on high looking down, but like looking up with the audience. Yeah. Did that launch you into this world of reading all of the Stoics or? Yeah. Because I've heard you talk about it before and you're so passionate. Obviously, I've read the books. But it was a long time from 19 until this became what you were known for. Yeah. I mean, I, I had I, I liked all the stuff. And I think I was primarily, though, in my early 20s, interested in it as a philosophy of productivity or success in the same way you know, people, there's something attractive about the prosperity gospel because it's like, if you do this, you will get this. But you're not actually understanding what this is and why it's important. And so I think my relationship with it grew and evolved and I added to it my own experiences and then the other schools of philosophy that I studied. So it's it took a while. And, and um, I remember actually I got, someone offered me a chance to write what was the obstacle is the way in maybe like 2008 or 2009. So like several years before it came out. And um, 
my mentor Robert Green was like, definitely don't do just it. Just a just a tiny name drop, not no big deal. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I mean, I, I it was sort of my dream person to work for, but I was like, hey, like they, it's here, like the thing that I've always wanted is here, like my shot. And he was like, this is not your shot. You are not ready. And that was the hardest thing in the world to hear. But he was totally right. I needed to go make a bunch of mistakes, do a bunch of things, see a bunch of things until I could really write and talk about it. And then even then, my understanding of the words, even in my own books, is different many years I'm sure. later. I That book, I told you this when I first emailed you, was hugely impactful for me. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and I didn't intend to read it. It was, I had read your marketing book and then f- I know it sounds so ridiculous what I'm about to say, but I was just sort of like stoicism. You know, I'm very emotional. Yeah. I'm not, it feels like the opposite of who I am. It feels mm-hmm. like this will not be helpful in any way. And my boyfriend is basically like dating Yoda. He's very calm. He's very centered. And I saw it on his bookshelf and I didn't have a book. So I was like, "Eh, I'll try it. And then I devoured it. It was so helpful for me because it came at a time in my life where I really was grappling with so many things that had happened to me. And I was like, why does this stuff happen? And the idea that if you can get past that obstacle, it really is the the skills or the tools or the resources that you harness in order to get past the obstacle is how you become the next version of yourself. Yeah, I and I actually understand the book like differently. There's this thing from the Stokes that we're, you never step in the same river twice, that everything is different because you bring something different to it. So I think when I was writing the book, I was very much thinking about it as like, a, I don't know, like an analogy would be like, you're a small company and you don't have all these uh, advantages compared to your big competitor, but that makes you creative and therefore you're better than your sort of bureaucratic larger competitor. So I was thinking about it in terms of like how constraints make us creative or create opportunities. And that's definitely one read on the idea that the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way, which is what Marcus Rios is talking about, the book is based on. But as I've gone through stuff, and seeing more things, I've also come to realize that it's less glib than that. Like it's, he, he's, he's saying that what happens to you happens to you. And that's an opportunity for you to be a different kind of person as opposed to like one door is closed so you go through this window. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He says basically that every obstacle or impediment is a, is an opportunity to practice a virtue. And that virtue might be acceptance. Yeah. It might be forgiveness. You know, so like when, when you hear the obstacles away, I and obviously I was writing towards like, hey, this is how you scrappy startup becomes more successful. But I've come to see it more now, like somebody betrayed you, somebody stole from you, somebody hurt you when you were little. N- now you're wrestling with that. What is that an opportunity for you to be as a person that is some form of greatness? Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, my my relationship to it has changed because you just realize that some things, like the loss of someone you love or a pandemic or something that happens in the world, it's not like, oh, where's the silver lining? You know, or like, but now I can do this. It's more like, what is this situation demanding of me? And how can I step up and be that? 
And I think that's a, a more meaningful way to think about it. Yeah, I am wired to look for the silver lining that yeah. I'm just always like, okay, well, how can this be for me? And how can I learn? And how? Yeah. And my partner is very much accepting, just yeah. like it is. Mm-hmm. It just is. Yes. And sometimes it just is. Yes. And he had been talking about that for as long as we had been dating. And I was just sort of like, well, we're going to agree to disagree. <laughs> And reading that book was really helpful. I wouldn't say that I'm all the way there, but I'm so much more accepting of especially people, of people that in the past I would think, well, this is toxic energy or this is, you know, this person. I'm talking about family members. Like this person's crazy or it is what it is. And when I try and um, fight back against that. Yeah. I only make my life more uncomfortable. Like it's that Byron Katie quote, defense is the first act of war. Mm -hmm. That when I try and like defend what I think should be true, because like I'm not upset that you're acting this way. I'm upset because I think you shouldn't be acting this way. Yeah. So if I can just sort of accept that that is what it is and then go about my existence with or without you in my life based on how you're behaving, that has been huge for me. Yeah, I think um, we saw this during COVID for sure, where a lot of people's arguments over this or that or this or that boiled down to, but I wish this wasn't true, right? And I, I see that even in relations with my spouse. Like, you're you're mad at this person, but really what you're just saying over and over again is like, I wish the facts were otherwise. Yes. Like, I wish you had not done this. Yes. But they did do it. It did happen. This is the situation that you're in. It's raining. Like, yeah, it's not supposed to rain. And yeah, you wanted someone to bring an umbrella and you told them to make back. Like, you, all that all that stuff is true. But it, now this is what it is. And so you can torture yourself and them going in this loop over and over and over again, hoping that if you say it enough times, you can will different facts into existence. Or... You can accept those facts and go, okay, what can I do with this hand that I have? Yeah. And so I think acceptance has kind of a really nasty connotation. Like there's a passivity in it and a weakness. Oh, I think it requires so much strength. Well, And not only does it demand an incredible amount of strength and fortitude, but it's also the first step in doing anything about it. Like you can't change something that you deny is not the way <laughs> that you want it to be. You I- Accepting reality on reality's terms is the first step. This is, I think, politically a huge mistake that people make, right? They don't want something to be true about human nature, about other people, about the world, about public opinion. So they just think if we just say things enough times, we can wish away the fact that a good percentage of population does not agree with us on this versus, hey, this is morally correct, our position, but for whatever reason, and actually we need to understand what that reason is, a large percentage of the population does not agree. The law does not agree. And so how do we change that, right? So the acceptance, like in addiction or recovery, acceptance is the first step in, uh, Admission and acceptance is the first step in trying to chart any kind of new or better future. And your denial is not only 
not true, but it's harming the thing that you purport to believe in. How do you feel like, for people who are listening or watching this, if they're trying to figure out if they're in denial in a certain area, are there things that you would identify as like, this is probably a pretty good sign that you're not being honest with yourself about what's really going on? I've been saying lately in some of my talks, like uh, the thought it's different this time is like <laughs> the, the first sign things oh, are about to go so super real. sideways. Yeah. Um, you know, it's different this this time. It doesn't apply to me. I'm the exception. Um, I don't know. If only I could get them to see, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, when when you when you have, I think it's hard because like if fundamentally any creative person or entrepreneurial person or person in a position of leadership is inherently in denial, is inherently irrational. There's a, a great quote that is basically like, a rational person it, uh, it accepts the world as it is. An irrational person seeks to change the world. So this is like fundamentally change and progress depends on the irrational man. Yeah. And so it's hard. Like you, you have to have that. Like you have to believe that what you're doing can make a difference. You have to believe that you have agency. You have to believe things can change. You have to believe that you matter, that you have power. You have to believe all that stuff. Um, you have to believe that you're right, even though all the people that are telling you the odds are against you uh, are overwhelming. You have to you have to believe that they're wrong. So you you have at the core of who you are is some bit of irrational rejection of the status quo or the odds or whatever. But and you need that, but you can't have that in everything that you do. Well, I would also, I wonder too, if there's something to like, you keep trying to do the same thing and mm -hmm. you're never getting the results that you're looking for. I was sort of like doing the same thing over and over and expecting. The definition of insanity. Right. But I encounter this a lot in the women in my community. They'll say, you'll start to talk about something. And they're like, oh, I know. Yeah. I know. I've read all the books. I know. I know all that. And I'm like, no, you don't know. Because if you actually knew then you would understand how to apply it in a way that would get you to the result you're looking for. So it's, you know, knowledge isn't power. Applied mm -hmm. knowledge is power. So you don't know. And there's some piece or maybe many pieces in the equation that if you just tweaked them a little bit, you'd start to really move. Well, everyone knows, right? Everyone knows how you're supposed to lose weight, right. how you build a business. How, right. The facts are, the, 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 the thing is pretty simple. Yeah. There's just some part of it, that a part of us that doesn't believe it, that doesn't believe we could do it, yes. that doesn't believe that we have what it takes. There's some part of you that has not fully accepted that or has not fully committed to that. And I think that it's going to make it very hard to do whatever the thing is that you want. It doesn't, so it doesn't matter that you know. And there's, I think one of the things you learn in therapy is there's a big difference between like intellectually understanding something and like emotionally understanding that thing. And I think it's really common and really easy to intellectualize or to be, yeah, 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 I get it. Okay, it's clear. But you, you're like 40% of the way there. This is probably why, and I'm not a fan of them and don't do them, but like I think this is why psychedelics are so powerful for some people is that like that thing that they knew or that they kind of understood, right. it resonates with them in some way. The defenses are down and they they get it. Because like whenever, you t whenever I talk to someone who's like, oh, I just did ayahuasca or whatever, yeah. I'm like, what did you learn? And yeah. they're like, I learned 
I was going to die. Or it's like, I saw a little version of myself as a kid and I was scared and I realized I've been, it's like, yeah, this is like 101 of life, therapy, philosophy, religion. And you real like, I'm not making light of it. It's just like knowing it and knowing it are different things. So real. Have you done psychedelics at all? And you never will? No. And I really hate that people call it doing the work. Well, I I will say I'm so fascinated by this, um, and I have a couple people coming on as guests soon that are very into psychedelics. And I'm really curious about exploring the idea of spiritual bypassing. Yeah, uh, that you get so into doing the work. Um, I also I have done psychedelics, so I'm like not I'm not dogging it. I am the queen of like let me try a thing and sure. see what I learn. But that people do it so much that they're sort of, at least from the outside, it seems like they're getting to this place of enlightenment, but I'm confused about what the enlightenment is for. Because I thought the whole idea was that you were taking what you learned and applying it to your very real life. But if all you do is keep escaping through, whether it's, you know, I have friends who like meditate for five hours. I'm like, it must be nice to be rich and not have kids. Because what are you talking about? Like, this is not, how normal people behave and you have a choice as a human being to just live your life on another plane but i thought that the point of the enlightenment was so that you could bring it back down to this very real life that you're living inside of and use it to help yourself or help others yeah, it's like you know what you sound like you sound like a drug addict you're like i did this thing it felt magical and that's why i like to do I it a lot going back. <laughs> yeah 100%. and then you found a way to tell yourself that it's like medicine yes um so anyways, I, I, I tend to be skeptical or somewhat cynical about anything that presents itself as like a magical solution to right. problems that human beings have been struggling with for there basically is, all of the human experience. Yeah, there is a lot of, I have friends who are in the military and have done um, journeys that are guided that have been so healing to them. So I just, I want to no, at least very different. say I, like, I actually make that exception too. Like if you have uh, like treatment resistant depression, you're, they're already giving you a lot of different medications. And yeah. so like try them all and see what works. And also I suspect if that's you, you're not the kind of person that's like, now wearing weird hats and like going, <laughs> going to, on these going to Burning Man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're trying to get some relief from something that's making it impossible for you to function as a person in the world. To me, that's very different than this sort of commercialized sort of tur- like medical tourism yeah. that it feels like some yeah. people have decided to get into. Do you ever push yourself to do things like this? that you your instinct is like absolutely not this is not for me well a less uh a much less controversial version of them and is probably the reaction you were having to my book which is like anytime i see something that's like like a book that's just like selling like crazy i'm like well i'm definitely not reading that <laughs> and then 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 i read it and i'm like oh this is why it's so right. huge it's, so it's actually funny. good it it's really so good funny. it deserved all of yeah. like very rarely have i picked one of those up and now i've been like this was totally unwarranted. I'm like, no, this. Th- there's a reason Malcolm Gladwell is yeah. so huge. I love Malcolm of course. Gladwell, yeah. But you're just like, oh, this is why. Like, it, there's a reason. You're just being like a judgmental asshole is what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think probably too, as an author, you're like, hmm, 
Like, yeah. well, the question of like, how did they get that? Yeah. You know, like, well, and then you start comparing yeah. and you're like, well, dang it. I, you know, so it's my own thing. And I feel like it's probably better to not soak it in. Yes. Um, and I definitely have had times where I've read stuff and I'm like, oh, I get why this resonates, but I don't, this is not my jam at all. That is a huge breakthrough um, that I try to even tell people who like tell me that they don't like me. I'm like, yeah. I'm not for everyone. Yeah. When you have an understanding that what you do is not for everyone, that it was literally not designed for every kind of person, but designed for a specific kind of person, that should be transferable to all things and realizing like, this person is making things for people that are not me. Yeah. And if they like it and it's getting, it's doing something for them, that's awesome. Why would I have a problem with yes. that? Yes. It's so wild because I think this happens a, a ton in personal development mm -hmm. that people get so fired up and they'll just like hate a specific style of teaching. And there's lots of people that are not for me. Yeah. But if that person and their style is helping someone, then why do you care? Yeah, I think, look, there's there's definitely some people who are fundamentally dishonest or unethical or exploitative. Sure. And like, I'll draw a line there. But like, comedy is a good example. There's so many different types of comedians for so many different, like there's styles of comedians, there's generations of comedians, there's comedians for certain groups, certain experiences, certain age demographics. And there is this instinct when you don't like a comedian to say like, they're not funny. And the, no, it's that what they're talking about is not funny to you. to you. But if there is a stadium of people laughing at that person, chances are they're right and you're wrong, right? And and I think if you want to talk about accepting, to get to a place where you're like, that person is funny, but not to me. Or that comedy is for a phase in life or a type of experience that is not me. And I have no problem with that. Like, yeah. I'm okay with that existing but there is this instinct what's the expression like don't yuck someone's yum uh but there That's is this good. thing it's like when somebody says like i like this and your instinct is to be like let me tell you why you're wrong which goes back to what we were just talking about which is like somebody else's feelings or somebody else's feelings and they're in no way mutually exclusive with your feelings or your tastes and to be able to just be like yeah. Cool. Yeah. Amy Poehler has this quote in her book where she's talking about other moms and how they mother. Mm -hmm. And her line that she uses over and over is good for her, not for me. Yes. Just like good for her, not for me. Good for her. She's going to make an organic lunch and one of those special, you know, things and like the kit for her preschooler and they speak three languages and like good for her, not for me. Yeah. Uh, but we're so judgmental about how other people do things. I, a great example of this, and you don't consume social, it sounds like, but I happened to notice or the algorithm wanted me to notice a ton of reels that were women in their late 30s and 40s who were, you know how you can take a video and like add your own video on top of it? I don't yeah, know it's a reaction. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Um, so they were doing that with young women, women who are 19, 22, and those younger girls would, would be talking about a style or... A lot of times it was like a scrunchie or a puka shell necklace, stuff that we had when we were yeah. younger. And these women in their 40s are just eviscerating these yeah. young women. Like, we already did that. We already did it. And they're so mean and so vicious. I'm like, what is wrong? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, sure. Are no, you okay? They're this definitely is, not. This is wild. Like, 
This girl is not hurting anybody. She's literally excited about a new headband that she got. That All she's doing is putting her joy into the world. I got a new headband. It's so cute. And you are using that as your content to rip her apart. And you're 20 years older than she is. Yeah. This is embarrassing. Yeah. Just let, let them do what they're going to do. You don't have to get it. And do your own thing. Well, and I think what, to go to what we were talking about earlier, is part of that is like they are hearing something very different than that young person is saying, right? Yeah, that's right. And so like when you're, if you're fundamentally insecure or fundamentally don't like who you were at that age, somebody like, like I, I, I forget who it was, but I saw some woman, she was like uh, uh, some overweight woman and she's talking about being like bullied on the internet. She was like, why is it a problem for you that I don't hate myself? Mm. And I think a lot of the backlash about the body positivity movement is fundamentally about that. So it's like, I paid off my student loans. Like, why should you get debt relief? There's this part that goes like, I feel disgusting and I hate myself and I'm in pretty good shape. And here you are like medically obese and not healthy and you don't hate yourself. Whoa. That's not fair. Whoa. And so I think a lot of it is that. Like yeah. I suspect a, all moms feel guilty. I was talking about talking to my wife about this in here the other day. I think moms are much harder on themselves than dads are. A billion percent. <laughs> and so if you walk around feeling like you're not doing enough, uh, that you're not good enough, that you're falling short in all these ways, and then you see a woman who is confident or um, – focused on things other than the things you're focused on that can feel very much like an indictment of you and i wonder how much of the that's real anger towards you is like it would ne that anger would never exist if you were a male author oh uh, uh, all day long yeah. oh uh, this is like i uh, have internal debates with myself all the time is expressing any kind of success yeah for as long as i've been in business i always thought well, gosh, I never had an example. And I wondered this, right? I would look at Oprah. I would look at Sarah Blakely. I would look at all these women in business that I know are billionaires. Yeah. And they never talked about it. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? How are women supposed to be inspired and to look at other people who have figured it out? Like, it seems from the outside, like Sarah's killing it as a mom. She's built this amazing bit. Like, why is she never talking about that? Why is she pretending that she's a regular person? Right. Yeah. Like, yes, yeah. there's a whole yeah. other thing. So I was like, well, I'll be the one. I'll sure. say, like, this was years ago yeah. when I would be like, oh, we sold out this conference. Like 8,000 women are coming yeah. and we're doing this thing. And it would, I mean, I may as well have painted the target on myself, never thinking, because I grew up without any money, you know, like so many people like, working three jobs, doing the thing that I thought, well, if I talk about it and if I tell you the path that I took, you don't have to follow my path, but maybe it inspires you to do something in your own life. And what I actually got, it's like what you said earlier, that it was like, we're going to make this so painful for you that you will stop talking about these things. Yeah. And I have only recently become conscious of how many things I deeply care about that I have stopped talking about as a podcast host mm. and as a writer because I know that people are upset if you talk about money or they're upset if you talk about health. They're upset if you talk about body image. Like any of these things that I know are going to have a visceral response from the audience. So then I don't speak about them at all. Yeah, and we're sad. getting to a place in our culture 
or we're just we're talking about nothing because yeah. it's like I, you're not you're no longer playing to win you're playing not to lose well, I think the the problem is it's actually worse than that so you have sort of people who are sensitive to being yelled at to being criticized to being made to feel shame or whatever and then you have people who are apparently immune to those things God, and then, no, you don't, you don't. Because <laughs> oh, okay. what I'm saying is like, so it's like, uh, look, if you treat everything with antibiotics, you eventually create like super bugs that yeah. are resistant to antibiotics, right? So if you try to shame people for every sort of lapse in language or poor piece of judgment, if you try to say, oh, that post was insensitive or misguided, you're canceled, you're gone forever. Yeah. What that leaves you with is either the people who take no risks, stand for nothing, are meticulously calculating everything they do so that never happens to them. And then the people who are like, I don't give a fuck, right? Like I have zero shame. Yeah. And those people are the worst. And and so you and they'll talk with anyone, engage with anyone, say anything as long as it's provocative or you know what I mean? Yeah. Get so, clicks. Yeah. So so it's it, it creates the opposite of a world that you think you want. Because you think you're holding people accountable, but really you're just selecting out. You're getting rid of all of the people. By nature, the fact that this person is trying to apologize, by the nature of the fact that this person feels bad about what happened, you're actually like eliminating them from contributing to pop popular culture and you're leaving only the people who are incapable of feeling any of those incapable things. Incapable of feeling or perfect at playing the game. Yes. And then the and then it's just like it's just a picture and an emoji and it means nothing. Mm -hmm. And so on some level I am the prime candidate the way I was raised and everything. I am the prime candidate for using shame as a maneuver to get me to stop yeah. moving. I don't mind failing. It's like I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't fail continuously. Uh it's the it's very easy to say specific things and have everything crumble yeah. because I'm like, oh my God, I, you know, what's that Brene Brown? Like guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. Sure. And so I am like, you will, it, it's so easy to, um, to use that and have me stop moving. And when that's happened in big ways, which it obviously has, uh, it took a lot of therapy and a lot of prayer and a lot of meditation and a lot of these things that I thought I had already, like I had this stuff in droves, but it took everything in me to then learn and grow and get past that. And what finally made it so that I could feel like I'm doing my work the way I've always done it to get back to this place was that my core value is believing that the only way you and I are going to get better or Jack, or your team, any of us, is that we have to try stuff, and we get it wrong, mm -hmm. and we have to learn from it. That is a core value of mine. If I want to grow, I'm inevitably going to do something where I have to learn from it. Yes. And if I believe that's true for every human, then I have to also give myself that grace. Sure. It would see, sure. Sure. But that was yeah. like a huge, yeah. like it took me so long to get back to a place where I was like, okay, you can, you can mess up, of course you can, the only real failure here is if you don't learn from it and you go hide out under a rock and you never do anything again. Yeah. Or if it, so there's this line from Mark Strelis. He says, it can only harm you if it harms your character. Right. And I think he's saying in, in two ways. So one is like, you say something, 
you screw up, people get mad at you. And so you're like, I'm out. I'll never try again. That's obviously not making, that's not good character. The other version is like what we're talking about, which is it turns you into a reactionary. It turn it turns you into the thing that those people are criticized, those people are criticizing you for being, which happens all the time, right? Someone goes from like kind of controversial to like public enemy number one on yeah. purpose. They yeah. say like, I'm going to own this, right? Right. You, you called me X, you tried to cancel me for X. Well, now let me really show you. Now you're sort of motivated fundamentally by some kind of grievance. And um, that takes people to a very, very dark place when, when your life is defined by some kind of grievance. Like I'm going to show them, I'm going to uh, prove them, I'm going to be so successful that no one will ever be able to do something like this to me again, yeah. right? That sort of, that, that I'm going to be so successful, they have to let me in their club, right? And I think um, that, that's what happens to people. is like something happens to us early in life, something happens to us in our career, and then this fundamental grievance or wound becomes like the primary motivation lens through which we operate, and that never ends well. Right, right. Well, it's also part of acceptance is just sort of like, it is, like this happened. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do now? Yeah. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go from here? Right, like so, so the thing happened – um, it doesn't take away all the things you've ever done. Doesn't empty well, that's your bank what, account. Right? That's like, what's wild because I actually just wrote a chapter about this. I just turned in my tenth book, Ryan. You know what a big deal that is. I yeah. turned it on Friday. Promptly got a cold sore. I was like, "Thank you, <laughs> thank you, body, for shutting down." But I wrote a chapter on this experience and processing through everything that was. And writing down my emotional response to that time period is crazy. How dark that was for me. I, oh, horrible, horrible. And no matter how upset people were with me, it is nothing, not even the tip of how much I beat myself up. Really? Oh my God. Because... I was like, I've done this for 10 years. I don't understand how I didn't know that this would be upsetting to people. Like I just, I like, I couldn't process it. And what's crazy is a decade, a decade of blogging every day, nine books, 400 podcast episodes, a, a 60 second TikTok video then became the definition of who I am and my work in my own mind. I really don't know that the rest of the world was like, fuck her, like burn her, burn the witch. But I felt like that. When you were making that video, because it was a response to a already controversial, yes. did you think like, I'm crushing it? Did you think this could go the other way? Were people like, I don't think that's gonna work? I really thought there was something to this idea of like, Every single woman I admire in history lived a life that wasn't relatable to anybody else. Yeah. Like in my brain, like there was always that quote, right, that said, if if your life makes sense to other people, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And so I always was like, oh, yeah, that's – and to be totally fair, because I've analyzed this from every fucking angle, I was angry. Sure. And I should – you should never create when you're angry. But I felt like – 
and this can sound you can I can sound like a whiny bitch all day. That's fine. But to me, I felt like I'm so tired of getting picked on. Yeah, I am so, and I'm sure people look at that and be like, "What are you talking about?" But like every day, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, I'm so tired of getting picked on, and. I was pissed because when I had done a live stream the day before and someone in the comment section on the live stream, uh, a woman said she was really struggling. She had severe depression. She was like, my house is thrashed. It's so dirty. And I'm, I'm, I have so much shame about my house. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you got two options. Yeah. You can either just be okay with the fact that your house is dirty. And right now your, is your time to focus on your health. Or if you can afford it, you could have someone come over and help you clean. Yeah. And it was like, then people exploded. How dare this totally unrelatable? Yeah. Why would you give her that advice? And then they started attacking her. Right. And I was like, I'm so sick of this. Sure. Even saying it right now, it's like rising in my chest. And so I like just sat with it for a couple of days and I was like, this word, unrelatable, unrelatable. And I was like, oh, I okay, yeah, I'm not, this isn't. Yeah. I have, you know, 60 employees I'm trying to hold together during COVID. I have, you know, four kids that I'm trying to raise and uh, you know a little bit yeah. about what was yeah. going on on the other side like I'm doing all these things this isn't relatable continuing to show up like that was just where that sure. was the intention and I thought I'm not the only woman yeah. who's probably doing things that feel like this Yeah, and just fucking idiot like I was just like I got a video idea that see this is why you have to have someone post for you well there you go because They'd they be would have like, been like are you sure are you sure or like you just don't post in that moment yes but ryan i try I've to make a big forever deal. and i still slip of course well everyone does but i i, I try to think about I, i've thought about this where it's like there's a difference between being angry and then doing something out of anger and i try yeah. to separate those two oh, things good. right because no one is saying you can't be angry. You can't have the feelings, which I think is what some people think stoicism is, mm. right? It's that you some, and maybe that is, maybe that's the end state. That's the Jedi master <laughs> state like, where all, you have transcended yeah. emotion. Yeah. You cannot be provoked. You yeah. cannot be hurt. You know, you cannot be pricked. But I don't think any of us are there. But what we can do is before we take the action out of anger, we try to stop ourselves, we right. institute some pause, we have some sort of break, we look for the off-ramp. And I just think like, there is almost nothing, there's no time that I've ever done something out of anger that I'm like, afterwards been like, well so done. glad I did that. <laughs> that made things so much Yeah, no, better. I, 100%. And I think too, like, it was perfect storm. Yeah. We're in the midst of COVID, trying to keep a company together, trying to keep 60 people employed, going through a divorce, hormonally unbalanced i found out later just like it was a perfect storm sure. and what because i am the person that's like okay how is this experience for me i wouldn't take it back sure. i wish that i didn't upset people i wish that i i didn't hurt anyone's feelings or make them feel like this was an unsafe space any of that but if i had to trade what i learned and, and I, I heard this once that like um, they asked people what was the worst thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. And if you had to give up that experience, but you give up everything that came with it, would you do it? Yeah. That most people would say no. Well, that's the definition of what the obstacle is the way it is, right? Almost everything that was terrible in our lives ultimately form us into who we are. And so with enough time, we go, that was for the best. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have chosen that, but like right. I wouldn't be here without it. Right. 
And then, so we know that intellectually, right? We, we look ob objectively at the course of our lives and we're like, I would not be here if I had not been there. Yeah. And then we're here, we're in the middle of some shitstorm, and we're like, why is this happening to me? It's so unfair. How do I stop this from happening? You know, I'm being picked on, whatever. And we don't, we can't, we can't flash forward and go. Someday. I'm yeah. going to give myself the gift of what I'm going to feel about this later right. now. Right. And that's what I try to do to the best of my, my abilities. I go, okay. Later, there's a, a, a line from Freud. He says, like, one day in retrospect, the struggle will strike you as most beautiful. And I go, oh, this is the struggle. This yeah. is the thing. Like, this is three chapters into the book that you're not sure you're going to finish and you're thinking about quitting. When you do finish, you're going to be like, I'm so glad that I didn't quit. Yeah. Or this argument that you're having with your spouse, you're like, is this it? What are we doing? They're like, you know what? Like, this is going to be that thing, right? right? And I, ju I just try to think about that when I'm deep in the shit. Yeah. I go like, this is that thing that later, however it pans out, whatever direction, that is the beautiful, insidious, weird thing about life is that we're like, what if I regret X, Y, or Z? But you never regret it because in the future, you look back and you go, I wouldn't be where I am without it. You find a way to incorporate it into your narrative, into your life, into the story that uh, that that you're happy with. Yeah. And so you're worried so much in the moment and you don't realize that like in the future that worry will not exist. So why not just not do it? Right. Uh, yeah, I wish we could snap our fingers and, and get to that place immediately when we're inside of well, something. Well, I mean, even in relationships, like you know the thing you're mad about right now. You will not be mad about it next week, six months from now, a year from now. Like you yeah. just won't, right? You'll be like, why did I care so much about that? And then you're like, I will fight to the death on this right now. Right, in and, this moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so just, real, it's like, if you can just turn the intensity down, like if you can just be like, hey, in the future, I'm going to feel, I feel like a 10 about this right now, but in three months, I'll be at a four. Yeah. Maybe I, well, I should try to not take a 10 level response. Yeah. I To think, you know, it's been over two years to think that I could ever sit here with you and have this conversation and not, have a full breakdown. I'm yeah. not exaggerating at all. Yeah. That I could ever get to a place where I could talk about it. I, oh God, I heard this quote and I don't know whose it is, but it's one of my favorites, which is when we can remember something without emotion, it's wisdom. Oh, that's great. Isn't that great? Like when you're not affected and I just remember I read that in the midst of everything. And I just remember someday, someday, Rachel, you're going to get to the place where this does not destroy you to think about, where you can just see the things that you learned. Because for me, I, I really believe 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and understand that the good girl, people pleaser in me could never have continued to do work like this yeah. if I didn't accidentally do the worst thing I could think of doing. You know that what I mean? That's not even close to the worst thing. You I know, done, but, but yes, for me, like yeah. uh, one of my personal triggers, which I'm sure if I do enough IFS therapy, I'll understand why, is getting in trouble for something you didn't know was bad. Hmm. This is my worst. Where it's not like you were embezzling money. And no, you and I yeah. knew it. Yeah. So like it pops up all the time. My boyfriend's like, babe, like we'll walk through an airport and someone will be like, ma'am, you can't go that way. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm so innocent. sorry. Like, I know, like, don't take me to jail. He's like, calm down. So for that to have happened, like it just broke everything apart in the most painful way. But I remember one of my best friends saying at the time, she was like, 
people think that you learn the most, like you go to college, you sit in a classroom, a teacher is talking to you. She's like, no. We learn the most when something is deeply fucking painful. Yeah. And this is deeply painful and you will never lose the lessons that you take out of this because it was so hard to get them. There's a Bertrand Russell quote that I love um, that I think about often. He says, uh, the first sign of, a pen, of an impending nervous collapse is the belief that your work is terribly, terribly important. Ooh, that's and good. so whenever you think that this thing, it's like, I have to do this. <laughs> the stakes are so high. Or when you're saying to people, you don't understand, uh, it's nonsense. And yeah. you've gotten sucked into this vortex of ego and, and you know, bad priorities and self-importance and yeah. all of that. And it's like, it really doesn't matter. And and in a few years, you're going to think about this and be like, what? Right. Why, right. why did I think it was literally a matter of life or death? Even if I'd done nothing, yeah. things would have been fine. Yeah. Like even if I, the, even if, let's say it had actually been some real cancelable event and you're just like, that's it. She never gets to make anything yeah. again. Her social media handles are taken away, whatever. You would have been fine. I mean, you wouldn't have ended up under a bridge. Right. 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 Like, what is the worst? Like, you think about when you when you read about people who really did fuck up their lives. Yeah. Like, they got a job at a restaurant. Right, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which, like, most people are doing yeah. without, th like, you'd be fine. Yeah. But you have this belief that you're the center of the universe and <clears throat> that you cannot function without your work, impact of your work. And that's also what's contributing to why you're so wrapped up and why you've lost all perspective and why this thing that seems normal to you right. is heard Isn't. so radically yeah. differently yeah. by everyone else. 100%. How do you bring that to your work? Like you're thinking about not taking yourself so seriously or not being so wrapped up in the importance of what you do, but you do have a massive following. You write books, you have the podcast, you have the bookstore. Like what is your approach to your work now that's maybe different? Well, I, I try one just like really easy thing is just some like like we we're talking about some distance between doing the thing and putting the thing out like um cheryl Strayed said this thing one time that i really like i think about all the time she said there's a difference between writing and publishing like writing is the thing that i like doing that's the craft that's what's important and meaningful to me then all the other stuff is publishing right obviously you get paid for publishing you yeah, don't get paid nice. for writing yeah. you get paid for publishing so you have to do it like i just make lots of stuff and then i have a team that helps like get it to the yeah. other side. And I am also involved in the publishing and I go, this could have been better. What about this? These yeah. are the deadlines. I'm involved in all that. But like the main thing I care about, the place I'm actually the most demanding, my team might disagree, but where I, they, they're not in my head so they can't actually know. But like where I'm most demanding is me sitting in front of the thing. So that's what I actually care about. That's like where all the energy is going. And then I'm chiller about the other stuff. So I think about it one that way. Just from a logistical standpoint, you said you write an email every, is that seven days a week? I mean, I wrote an email upstairs while you were arriving. And is like, it? I'm, 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 I'm probably three months ahead on Daily oh, Stoke. Is it like a paragraph? Is it, I'm yeah, positive each, each my daily boyfriend Stoke, gets it. But each I... Daily Stoke email, the Daily Dad ones, they're like 250 to 300 words. Okay. Like, and then it's podcast version of it. I do it in other media. But the point is, I'm never like, what am I going to say today? Mm. Uh, I am making stuff and then we're figuring out how to use it. And so I think if you're like, what? I have to put up a post today. How did today's post do? Blah, blah, blah. Then you're in a much more vulnerable place. But if you're just making stuff 
and you have it, it for me as a creative there's a lot of slack and space i can not feel it today i can really feel it tomorrow yeah i'm not like writing to publish and so i i think that's a really important way to do it um and it insulates you from the success and the failure of it i yeah. think that's like a a really important part of it yeah the, the other thing is like i remember when we were expecting was that our first or second there's something like i guess it was our second like I, I got some offer to do something and it was like pretty soon after we had a kid and um i was like well i should obviously do this it's like a lot of money my wife's like no it's like too soon you can't leave and i was like you know, if I was a an NBA player, like I wouldn't have a choice. I would just like have to, like, like I'd have a kid, and then I'd like there's a game the next yeah, day. Like I gotta go. And she was just like, "Are you an NBA player?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, you know, like <laughs> shut up." Uh, uh, it was like horrible, but she's totally right. And yeah. then and, and then actually like meeting different athletes, you're like, this person is paid ten times, a hundred times what I'm getting paid. They're doing it for millions of people. They're they're one of five hundred people in the world that get to do this thing. And they're way chiller about what they're doing than I am. So I think once you see people who are operating at a world-class level, you realize like, oh, actually, the true masters are very chill. Yeah. And they're not like believing that they're the center of the universe. They have a certain humility and lightness about what they do. And so I'm not, I don't try to like affect that. Like I'm pretending to have it, but I do go like the highest form of this is not being a ball of stress and yeah. intensity and insecurity. Um, it's being, what should I do today? Yeah. You know, like, did I move a couple brush strokes here, do this, and then I'll come back to it later. Like trying, realizing that mastery is a very light place, not a very heavy place. That's good. I was just, I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking about it on a show that, the definition of success for me has changed so much over the last decade. What is your definition of success? That I get to live life on my terms. Like literally, I do. I can't believe that I have the job I have. Mm -hmm. I can't believe I get to hang out with interesting people and write words and that that pays for my family to take vacations. That sure. feels wild. Yeah, I've had a massive company. I've had a little company. And uh, our team today, small but mighty, fucking love it. Yeah. Jack and I have been together for 10 years almost like just that I, I just like get to do cool shit with cool people mm -hmm. that matters to me. And it used to always be about a number like, Oh, if I could just make this much money a year, if I could just sell this many books and I really have experienced the most success financially today when I just went back to old school, Rach working on her blog, that energy of like, I am just going to put my head down and do my best to do really good work. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that's when I've experienced the most success. So from the outside, like my Instagram's not growing. I'm not really doing much on social. But the podcast has never been bigger. Because I'm just like, I'm just going to put energy into this one thing. Which just expands the kind of life that I get to live. But it's it's very focused it's very centered and right here it's not this big expansive thing that i thought success was supposed to be yeah my definition of success is very similar it's one word it's autonomy like mm. am i in control of my life yes. or not yes and i don't think people realize that the thing they are aspiring to is a kind of a prison or like for me like a good day is i have like almost nothing in my calendar agreed and that's not because i'm not working or doing anything it's that 
my day is promised entirely to me yes. and to the people that I want. So yes. if the calendar is blank, it means I spent time with my kids in the morning. I took them to school. It means that I had a good morning writing. And then I had lunch and I read while I was reading. And then maybe I was like, fuck, I'm just going to go home at yeah. two. Like, that's yes. a good day, yes. right? If it's scheduled from here to here, even if I'm being paid for every single nope, one of those things, even if there's, it's all you know going up and to the right, um, but if you're not in control of your life, like how successful are you really? Yeah. And, I, and you're not the president. You know what I mean? Like the w world peace is not, there are some things right. where you're like, hey, this person is, you know, the head of this thing. Yeah. You know, like I'm a general in the Ukrainian army. Like, okay, this is a different. Yeah. But that's not you. Right. You live in Kansas. And, you know, like success should be like, is the car dealership you own running your life? Or is it complementing the life that you mm -hmm. want to have, right? And like, totally. you, that's how you should think yeah. about it. I feel like for me, I make my kids breakfast every morning. I do their lunches, get them off to school. I'm there when they get home. I make their dinner. I do bedtime. I do the whole thing. And certainly I have to travel for work sometimes. But I am, they, I don't even know that they realize I have a job yeah. because I work from home. Mm -hmm. Even this, like we're doing this while my kids are at school. So Mine when too. they get back, like I'm yeah. just mom's home. Like yeah. there's no upset to that schedule. And I have the ability to do my work from anywhere in the world, which is the greatest gift. I, I've done podcasts in Switzerland when I was skiing and London when I was there visiting family and New York or wherever. That is, that's worth gold. Yeah. It's worth gold. But I was thinking about this the other day. Like we, there's some, there's some part of us that knows that like too much success would take you away from that stuff. Right. Or we know like if suddenly you had a billion dollars, it would fuck up your kids. You know, you'd have to get security. Right. You, all these things that right. would come along with it. Right. We know that. Like we know that there's like some level above where we are. It could be one level above or it could be 500 levels above to a point where it would be counterproductive or destructive. And then when you step back and you're like, but what am I working on day to day? The irony is you're working on getting there. Yeah. Like we we know like, hey, this is what happens to people when they get there. Like when their band really blows up or when their, you know, their book sells X number of millions of copies or when their startup gets bought for $10 million. We know they end up getting divorced. Uh, their their kids get drug problems. They have to go to these private schools. They never see it. Like we know it's a cliche. Yeah. We know what it is. And then it's like, so what are you working on? And you're like trying to get that. Right. Like, that's, right. I'm, I'm spending literally all I'm spending all my energy uh, trying to get to a place that I actually know would be bad. And then if you go, well, why are you doing that? And you go for my family. I'm doing right. it all for my family. Right. The people who actually want you. I saw this, I had heard it. I saw this meme and it was like, uh, who were the rich kids in school? And it was like the kids whose parents picked them up. Mm. And you didn't like, you realize now that those parents might have been picking them up because they didn't have a job yeah. <laughs> or yeah. it could be because they had total security. But the point was they were like, that was rich because like they, they get to see their parents. Yeah. Like I, my parents were successful-ish, but like uh, we went to daycare after school yeah. and then or i was a latchkey yeah kid. i was a latchkey and, kid. and then like i saw my parents for like an hour a day mm -hmm. you know what kind of success is that now my parents have a dream life they live in like a tropical island or doing whatever but like they traded yeah the thing that they want now yeah they could have had yeah. and so really thinking about like what you want because that's the other thing is there's no guarantee that 
in the end, you'll have the time to sit around and Well, there's enjoy. no guarantee that you even get to the end. Yes. You know, right. this is this has happened in my own life so much. Um, like maybe four years ago, I lost my brother-in-law to a heart attack at 46 and then just lost my ex-husband at 47. And neither one of those men ever thought that was going to happen. Yeah. And neither did we. Neither did anybody in the family ever see a moment where they're no longer here. In fact, I remember at Michael's funeral, my brother-in-law, I remember Dave uh, there was a montage that played, and I remember him saying, like, oh, aren't we lucky we still have more time for the pictures in the montage of our funeral? And then mm. at his funeral, Jack, who obviously knew him very well, put together this beautiful montage of his life. And I was watching it at the funeral and just weeping because I'm like, you thought you had 40 more years yeah. for this video. You, you thought that that video was going to have your grandkids. You thought that that video was going to have this future that didn't happen. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We never fucking know. Have you read Blue Nights by Joan Didion? No, but I will. Uh, so this is her table. Is it in the bookshop? I'm uh, sorry. This is her, this is her table. Like, wow. This is the table her family would have like dinner at. And she there's this paragraph in the book where she's at her daughter's wedding. This is like July 2003. And she's walking on the street. And she says, I wonder if someone walking down Amsterdam Avenue saw the mother of the bride and thought, before this year is out, her husband will be dead at their table and her daughter will be in a medically induced coma and like leave this world like just a few months later. And so you think these things happen to other people. And she she talks about this. Her her She was sitting in her kitchen with her husband and he just keeled over and died. <sighs> and uh, I believe a heart attack, no, a brain aneurysm. And she rushed to the fridge where she had like the number for emergency service, like for the hospital. And she, she said, I remember writing that number down and putting it on the fridge in case somebody in the building needed it, right? Like you never think it's gonna happen to you. You think these are things that happen to other people. And so there's this kind of arrogance or entitlement, this idea that we're the exception to the rule that won't happen to us. And this is why we put stuff off. This is why we, you know, take people or things for granted. And then it does happen. Yeah. And it's not just loss. It's like, hey, I have a platform. I get to do this, you know, dream job. But also, like, it can be taken from you. You can fuck it up. The rules of the game can change. Mm -hmm. You can be the victim of an injustice. Like, you don't know how long you get to do it. So to not enjoy it while you do it and or worse to procrastinate or to defer is, you know, a rejection of the gift that is yeah. the present moment. Well, it's the myth of someday, yes. right? Someday when the kids are older, someday when I have more time, someday when this, someday when that. There is no someday. Yes. There is no someday. There's this moment. And it's one of those things that's so much easier said than done. Of course. Because, uh, like, especially, I mean, sure, I'm sure this is real for everybody, but I think especially if you're a parent, there's all these things we should do. Like, I think, I want to say it was Peter Atia was talking about when his kids are acting crazy and he gets really upset that someone who was an older parent had told him, the next time that your kids upset you and you want to scream, imagine yourself at 80 years old longing for this moment yes which is so beautiful right mm -hmm. like what a beautiful sentiment but also yeah there are times where 
my kids make me want to run my head through a brick wall. I'm just like, uh, kill me. Just yeah, let me. So it's this this beautiful thing to aspire to. And at the same time, I think it's easy to listen to a conversation like this and be like, well, that's nice, but I don't know how that works in my real life. Well, one thing I, so I totally agree. I may have had that conversation with Peter. That, I think I'm about prob- that. No, because I think about that all the time. You go like, you go, um, some point in the future, you would give literally anything for this moment that one more of these moments that you're taking for granted, like one more bedtime, you would literally you'd be like, I'll change their diapers one more time. Like the thing you hate, the thing you found the most disgusting, you could you would give anything to have again. That bit of perspective, though, does not make the diaper that you're doing now any less disgusting or the yeah. kid who's just complaining or the kid that's doing the thing that for the 500th time you ask them to stop. Um, so you lose your temper, you get upset, you know, you're like, go to your room or you're like, ah, you know, whatever. What I think about from that is not that I expect some perfection from myself, but I think like, how quickly can I apologize? Like, how quickly can I go like, that wasn't who I want to be. That's not where I want to leave this. I'm not, I'm not just going to be like, oh, sometimes you fuck it up. And then like, yeah. just let that sit in the yeah. relationship. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put in a deposit to try to compensate however much I can for the debit that I just needlessly took yeah. out. Right. Like yeah. just re- realizing that, um, I just think back to my own childhood, like, how many apologies I can remember getting from my parents. Like Never. I probably counted on one Never. hand. Or any like, I didn't mean that. I was stressed out. Yeah. And how helpful it would have been to see that my parents were human beings who had their own emotions and were subject and victims to circumstance like everyone else did. And that sometimes those things overwhelm us and that that's not what life is. What life is is realizing when you have done that and then going, okay, that's not how it should go. I'm going to try to do yeah. it over. Yeah, I saw this uh, video or this reel on Instagram where the woman said, I think this is potentially the first generation where kids are growing up with parents who apologize. Yeah. And what is that going to do to a collective consciousness as this generation gets older that you see the humanity in that? I cannot think of one apology. Yeah. Or like a, I was stressed out. Or even for me, I have three boys. My youngest is a girl. But they all, all of those boys understand that there's a time of the month where I have let, I just, they understand hormones, they know, and not in like a weird way, but I want them, I'm just like, guys. Your mom isn't always rational uh, and on top of it. I'm just like, this is maybe not the day to start fighting with your sister. Like, this just not, and they're like, okay, okay, we got it, we got it, mom. Like just the realness of, or I'm exhausted, or I don't feel good today. That was not, clearly my parents were going through a lot, but they never talked about why they were maybe acting the way they were, which makes me wonder if they ever actually processed why they were acting the way they were, or if they were just like, rub some dirt on it, keep trucking. When I've I've seen it with my own kids now, my kids are pretty like, I'm sorry, I lost control of myself. Or mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry, I love you. I didn't mean to make... Like, they, I think you want your kids to apologize, take ownership of their behavior, to understand why they acted the way that they did. Um, and the way to do that is to, to show it. that yeah. you also know how to do that and that you do that. Yeah, that's good. Instead of, yeah, expecting yourself to be yeah. like perfect or yeah. whatever. That's good. I needed to hear that today because my my daughter's six and so she's getting to the age where she has better language to say to me, I'm sorry that I, 
you know, she's yes. she's a wild human. But she'll be like, I'm sorry that I screamed at you because you asked me to take a bath. You know, she'll she's getting old enough that she can like realize, oh, that probably wasn't my best behavior. But if I'm being honest, when I apologize to her, I don't think that I own the reason for it enough. Mm. So I'll be like, well, when you screamed at me, yeah. that made me feel frustrated. And so then, so it's almost like it's still her fault. Yeah, yeah. I'm realizing right now in real time, like, oh, well, mommy's sorry that she didn't have the ability to calm down or whatever. But that's such a good one. It's so different than the way we were raised, at least the way I was raised. Yeah, yeah. And I think about it with my parents too. They had some idea that like, they had to be like a united front at all times. And so- when the other one was being crazy or moody or too strict or irrational or triggered or whatever, then the other one would gaslight you as to, you know, that that's like not right. what's So you're 14 and you're like, this can't possibly be about what's yeah. I mean, she obviously just made a mistake and doesn't want to admit it. Yes. And then your parent, your other parents like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. you know, And you're just like, okay. This yeah. is weird, yeah. you know? And so the idea, I'm not saying you you come in your room, hey, your mom's crazy. You yeah. know, like that, that's fucked up also. Yeah. But just the idea that's like, hey, look, she's go- he or she is going through X. Yes. That's probably what's at play yes. here. And hey, uh, yeah, she took your iPad away or he took your iPad away. But I bet if you did your chores and you were chill after dinner, they'd be like, here, you're going to have yeah. it back. I don't yeah. really care about this. Yeah. Right? And, and the ability to teach them how to navigate the world and other people's emotions. It's not to say that actions don't have consequences, but that if you accept, like we're talking about, if you accept that other person's emotions and the causes of it, then you can orient your behavior and your response in such a way that it helps you get what you want after. How old are your kids? My oldest is six and my youngest is four. Oh, they're little. Yes. Oh, you're still in like little baby. Yeah, okay. Yes. I was gonna I was curious if you had teenagers because no, that's I a whole don't. separate beautiful thing. Yeah, I saw another Instagram about this that my wife showed me. She was um someone was saying like these parents that are like teenagers, ah and she's like, Teenagers are the best. They're the best. They like good music. They're, they're literally funny. so yeah, funny. Yeah. They're so fun. Their friends are interesting. Oh, I love having teenagers. It's like the reason you don't like teenagers is that you're used to being a tyrant. Yeah. And this person doesn't just accept everything right, you say and they're back. not scared of you. And that's why you don't like teenagers. Yeah. Like I so I have this uh the email and then the the account is Daily Dad. And like when I do see some of the comments, I go like, it would it must not be fun to be your kid. Right. Because you have like some strong dad energy, which is like, that's not how yeah. it is. Or the big one is like, you're not being respectful. You're not being yes. respectful because they ask the question or they challenge the idea. Or I always think it, it's so funny when people bristle against, especially as parents, like you bristle against a kid questioning, yeah. like, you know, my teenager going, well, why? Why is yeah. my bedtime this? Don't you want that? Yeah, I'm like, oh, well, I can explain yeah. it to you. So, yeah. you know, you should probably have this many hours of sleep a night. It's going to take about 30 minutes to fall asleep. Like, I have no problem explaining it to them because they're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah that sure. that does make sense. As opposed to my parents' favorite line, because I said so. I saw Jessica Gross wrote this piece in the New York Times, and she was saying that your kids misbehaving in front of you or like having an emotional meltdown or whatever it is, is actually a sign that you're a great parent, not a terrible one. Because um, the reason your kids are not doing that, the reason they're not asking why or trying to push back 
or when they're exhausted or scared or frustrated, you know, like acting out, the reason they're not doing that is because they're scared of you, mm. right? And the fact that they're not scared of you, that your house is a safe space, they, they understand that deep down you have their best interest in, in heart. That's why they're doing that. Yeah. But it can be really hard when your kid's having a meltdown to be like, not be like, I'm shitty or you're not how I want you to be. Right. But it's actually the opposite. It's like the reason your dog rolls over and gives you its belly is that it's fundamentally submitted to you, but but it it understands that you're not uh, an aggressive, um, dangerous presence in their life. Yeah. And the idea that you would want to be that in your kid's life is deranged. It's crazy. That you would want your kid to be scared of you and that's why they behave. I mean, that'll, I guess, make your life easier in the short term because they might not do some stuff like when your back is turned or whatever. But like at some point, they're going to be 26 and you're going to say, hey, what are you guys doing for Christmas? And Cats in the cradle, man. They're, they're going like... to say, not coming home yes. to your house. This is your what, house yes. is a fucking, what is it in your house is a, prison on planet fuck or something what was that movie but like they're they're yeah. not going to want to see you they're they're going to have their own kids well and they're definitely not going to. so i think a generation back and maybe this i'm sure this still happens culturally we were still dealing with uh children who had parents that were shitty or did things or all of that but it was like family is family yes. we're going to keep showing up we're not going to question this we're going to spend every holiday that is not how the next generation is. That's already not how this one is. So the idea that you would continue to go into an environment that's unhealthy or toxic or whatever, I think a lot of these parents who are like, you will respect me, you will do these things, are betting on an old mentality. I was actually, I was at a baseball game recently. My son plays uh, travel baseball. If your kids ever say, I want to play a travel sport, just like take out their kneecaps. Just don't, this is going to be your whole life. But I was at a game, hour and a half from my house, because that's what we do on the yeah. weekends. And I was listening to some other moms talk. And we're, one of the moms said, because all the boys are like really good friends. And one of the moms was like, man, when these boys get to high school, we're gonna, they're going to give us a run for their money. Because they're good boys. Yeah. But they're like, you know, pranksters. Yeah. They're loud. They're whatever. And another mom's like, yeah, no, for sure. And then another mom was like, not my son. Absolutely not. We teach him respect for his elders. We just she just like starts going off, and I was like, "Oh, this is fascinating." Yeah. You're literally like she for ten minutes was saying all of the ways that he was required to show up mm -hmm. respectfully, and so he would never slip from this. And I was like, "Oh, girl!" And incidentally, I asked my son later. I was just out of curiosity. This boy. Is he? And he was like, oh, mom. I'm like, yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Because yeah. you're creating this like oppression. There's no freedom there. You can't make a mistake. You can't slip up in any way. Like even saying ma'am or sir, things that are, are pretty simple. Everything is this great, like you're being disrespectful. I thought you are, lady, you are going to, he is going to go to college and you are never going to see him again. Well, I have some empathy for boomers because yeah, they were the last generation that just sort of had to like, what, however awful their parents were, like they had to take care of them. Yeah. And so I think they parented under the assumption that that would be true. And the rules changed. People understood things differently. People learned things. People went to therapy, et cetera. And they're like, no. Like, I think about that. I'm like, I'm very cognizant about like what I allow around my kids. And so Same. the fact that we're related 
you know, doesn't mean that much to Amen. me. That's really hard. Uh, in the in the Daily Dad book, um, there's this song by the Highway Women, and they they talk about um, the crowded table. They said like life, like a good life, is at the end of your life. It's a crowded table, right? Like people want to be around you, you see your family. Yeah. There's the the poet um, Robert Stafford. It's like some Christmas or holiday or something, and they're all there, and he and his wife go to bed, and they they they're in their bedroom, and they can hear the kids who stayed. Uh, talking about their childhood and their parents like in the other room and and he rolled over to his wife and he said something like this is the eulogy that we get to hear Mm. and if you think about your life as that if you think about how you want it to be 20 years from now 30 years from now 40 years from now it's almost certainly whatever this thing you're writing your kids about or this thing you're holding on to or this judgment you're making or you know whatever it is it's not gonna matter like you just think about you would do all you're going to want in the future is that your kids bring their grandkids around mm. or come and see you yeah. or whatever. So what do you what the fuck do you care what yeah. color they dye their hair yeah. or if they're gay or not yeah. or whatever what do yeah. you care? You I don't literally care. care that they are good humans. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And I have it's so funny cuz I know a lot of parents who are obsessed with grades. Yeah. They're already thinking kids in middle school or, or yeah. elementary school and they're already thinking about college and what that is. And my two oldest, I mean the little kids too, but who cares? They're in elementary yeah. school, but the two oldest get incredible grades. And I have sure. no idea, didn't ask that of them, didn't encourage that. I'm just like, are you a good, don't be a jerk. Like what, yeah. who are you as a human? Yeah. And my oldest is so driven to get into a good college. He really cares about that. I'm like, okay, like your mom's a hippie. Like I'll take you on a college tour. I have no idea that's a self-motivated thing. But he has friends. I do this um, once a month. I have a dinner where all of the teenagers come over, which is the most fun you guys should do. It's so much fun. And we have these really interesting conversations just because their lives are wild as teenagers. But the pressure that these kids are under to get perfect grade, the anxiety they have because they got They're not going to thank you for that pressure later. They're like, going to resent it. bonkers. Yeah, it's and I'm just, I, I'm always like, well, what would happen if you did, what would happen if you got a C? And they're like, oh my, I'm like, you guys, I, pr- I swear on everything I hold dear. A year from now, you will not remember the grade you got on the test that you're freaking out about right yeah. now. But there is so much pressure, which didn't come from them. That's from parents so I find it ironic that my kids have been given freedom to just like be a good person and they're automatically doing this thing, but, which isn't necessarily true for every child, but... No, but think back to your life where you were saying that your business grew and your things sold better when you stopped caring about uh, certain external results right. or measurements right. when you were just doing it because you liked doing it. Yeah. And that had certainly been true in my life. Like... I've said before, like on my first book, I was like 90% concerned with like how it was going to do and 10% like, I can't believe I wrote a book. Like this is my first book. Like I succeeded that I did it. Yeah. And I I would like to think that that ratio has come almost all the way around. Like Mm. it's flipped. Like on each book, I 10% have to care like how it did because I got to earn back in advance than the next one. And it's nicer to make more money than less money on a project. Like, But I'm 90% like, it was the book that I wanted to write. I put everything that I could have put into it. I fought for the things I needed to fight. And like, I'm proud of it. And it's good. 
And if it sells one copy or a million copies, I'm indifferent, right? The idea that you measure your success by the input, not the output, is, I think, a a fundamentally different way of going through the world. But the earlier you pick up on that, you know, like, are you someone, are, are you measuring how your kids do in sports by, like, whether they win or lose? Um, not like it's how you played the game, which, right. but, but like, are they the best that they could be at that thing? Like, yeah. are they, are they fulfilling the extent of their potential in this endeavor? Are they trying their hardest? That's what matters. Yeah. It's interesting for my son who plays baseball. Uh, he loves it and he plays every sport. He's, he's does all the things and the achiever in me, you know, more than once I've been like, we can get you yeah. a coach. Yeah. You know, he'll, his friends, they'll all talk about like, oh, if we're in the, you know, major league. And I'm like, I can get you there. I know yeah. how. We can get a coach. Sure. We can do the thing. We could whatever. If you want to. Yeah. And he's like, I just really like being on the team. Yeah. And he loves his friends. He loves hanging out. He loves being physically active. And he's very clear on why he's doing this thing. Yeah. So I'm like, fantastic. Great. Get out, bro. I'm speaking at the Naval Academy next week. And the, one of the stories I'm going to tell, uh, Jimmy Carter was like one of those kids, like the best and brightest of his generation. He gets into the Naval Academy. He uh, is you know, the only kid from this small town to go places. Um, and he he's interviewing for this job on a nuclear submarine, which is like at that time, like the penultimate thing you could get in the Navy. You were like a, you're a, sa- a soldier and a nuclear physicist. Like you had to be pretty fucking great. He's being interviewed by this guy named Admiral uh, Hyman Rickover. And Rickover was the head of <clears throat> the nuclear Navy at that time, basically invents the idea of ships and submarines being propelled by nuclear power. And, and he conducts all the interviews himself. So he's this long interview. They talk about all this stuff. And um, he goes, so how did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? Carter's like, you know, I was the 81st out of, you know, 500. And Rickover goes, did you always do your best? And he was like, of course, you know? And then he stops himself and he's like, oh, I know there's that one class and then there's this other thing. And he's like, and then I was a little, you know, I could have done this extra credit thing and I didn't always read all the books. Sometimes I was just just thinking about it and he goes like, no, I didn't always do my best. And then Rickover just goes, why not? And then he gets up and leaves the room. And that question like fundamentally changes Carter's life. Like, it's not just like, did you always do your best? But like, why, why didn't you didn't always you? do your best? And that like shapes his life. It's what propels him into the presidency, but also all these other things he he does later. Like the presidency by a lot of people's metrics wasn't a success. But to him, he was like, I was the best president I was capable of being. And it insulates you both from the ego of success, but also the sort of crushing disappointment of falling short. It's like, did you do your best? And that's such a, not were you the best? Like, did you have the most? Did you sell the most? Did you make the most? Were you the most famous or well-liked or whatever? But like, did you do your best? That's such a fundamentally different question mm. to measure your life by. Yeah. I Years ago, I went to see... It was three or four women on a panel who had all built really big companies. And um, one of them was older, a mom. Her kids were grown. And she was a single mom building this company that would then be worth millions, but had done it, you know, with the help of a nanny. And she said one of the things that she felt like best contributed to 
raising children who ended up being good adults and they still had a great relationship was she taught her kids to ask, Mommy, are you doing your best? So she said, more than one time, I would call home and I would have to say, I'm so sorry, I can't make it home for dinner. I got to stay at the office. I got to get this work done. And they'd say, okay, Mommy, are you doing your best? And she was like, you know, sometimes I'd be like, yeah, baby, I am doing my best and I I can't come home right now. Right. And sometimes they'd say, mommy, are you doing your best? And she'd say, you're right. I'm on my way. You know, I can cancel this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on my way. Yeah, yeah. And I remember she she had to be in her 60s at that point. And she talked about and she got emotional. She eyes welled up with tears of like teaching a seven-year-old to ask you are you doing the best that you can in this moment? Then also taught that child to ask themselves that question. Yeah, that's so um, great. It also reminds me of a little trick that I use for myself is what's 1% more? Mm. What's 1% more that you can give in this moment? Mm-hmm. What's 1% more that you can add to this workout? What's 1% more that you can use for your health right now? It's sort of that Jim Quick idea that we'll never just read one page. We'll never just practice the guitar for 60 seconds. But if you challenge yourself to just go, what's 1% more effort yeah. right now? That 1% stacks on top of each other to become such a better way of doing anything uh, that doesn't feel as daunting at the time. Yeah, like when I'm writing my sort of criteria for the day is usually like, did I make some kind of positive contribution to the thing? So, Wait, so you write a criteria for the day? Will you no, no, no. My, oh. my, like if, oh, if oh, I go oh. like, did I, did I have a good, like, did I do my job today? It, as a writer, it's like, I move some stuff around. Maybe I wrote 20 pages, but like the, the, I did the job if I made a positive contribution today. Mm. And that can be very small. So when you shrink what that contribution has to be, you're more likely to hit it. And then if you just do that consistently over a long enough time, like work comes out of the other side. So I think, you know, obviously there's also this idea of perfectionism, which can be very crippling. But if you're just like, hey, like I did something positive today. Like I did one good thing. I made one contribution. I go, that's that's what I'm trying to do. That's- well, it's like... um consistency versus intensity, mm-hmm. right? Like we think, oh, I'm going to go get in shape. Yeah. I'm going to go. I feel like I might be quoting you to you, which is scaring <laughs> me a little bit. Okay, this is not your quote. This is one of my yeah. fears. I read so much. So I'm like, oh God, yeah. if you're like, I yeah. know I wrote that six years ago. But the idea that we get really excited about a goal or we're going to change our life in some way. And so you're like, I'm going to go get a gym membership and I'm going to go do three hours because it's the new year and I'm yeah. pumped. And then you go again tomorrow and you do one hour because it's a new year and you're pumped and then it all fizzles away. Yes. That's intensity. Yeah. But what is actually life-changing is consistency. Sure. It's doing small amounts that add up and stack one on top of the other that take you to the next level of wherever it is you're trying to go. Yeah, and it, it it is kind of shocking how quickly it adds up. Like so I think people, real. Th- like I'll talk to people and they're like, you know, I'm trying to write this book, and it's like, you don't try to write a book. You are writing a book, or you're not, right? Like, are you doing it? Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you will have done it. Yeah. Um, it's not this thing you do in a fit of inspiration. It's not a marathon that has like a. St- Starting gun, and then it's over in mm-hmm. three hours. It's like an ongoing thing. And then you start the next one right after. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then you just keep going. Do you write one a year? That's kind of been the thing I've been on for more than 10 years now. And then I finished a book in January or December. Like I finished the draft of 
this, I'm doing this four book series on the cardinal virtues. And um, so I finished what is the third book. And um, I called my publisher and I was like, this is supposed to come out in September. I want it to come out the next September. So I took a year, um, which I've never done. And now I'm wrestling with like, what I still have work I have to do, like just generally as a person, but I'm, I am wrestling with what it means to be a person that is not in the middle of writing a book. That's mm. a new, that's a feeling I haven't had since my early 20s. Interesting. Which is weird. Yeah. I, when I f- published my first book, I went on a tear and I just kept mm. going, kept going. And I think I definitely got to the place where I was burned out with yeah. what I was doing. Also, because I realized in retrospect, I was doing too many other things. Mm-hmm. I was on the road every week speaking and doing keynotes, and I had a podcast and I had a business and all this stuff that really didn't fill the well. Yeah. So there was like nothing that I could. And I actually sure. wrote an entire book, an entire book, Ryan, that I scrapped because when I was, was this? this was 20, 2020. So the beginning of 2020 oh. is when I would have started edits on that. And it was also, you know, the world was exploding. And I was just like, the world's a mess. I hate what I've done. And in retrospect, I should have like edited it and worked with it. But I feel like it all happened exactly as it was meant to. But that book was written. There just wasn't anything left. Like I just, yeah. I had nothing to share or talk about because I was emotionally depleted. So to get to this place of turning in the book last week was so huge for me. Because I was like, you know when you turn in a draft and you're like, this is shit, yeah. but there's something here. Yeah, like, yeah. I think there's something here. And if I do nine edits on it, then there, there will be, yeah, it'll yeah, you, you trust the process because you've seen, yeah. you've seen a C minus get turned into a, an A. A hundred percent. This is the problem, I think, for anybody who hasn't done basically anything is they're seeing the a mm-hmm. and they don't understand that it starts with gar- like i'm embarrassed that my editor's reading this man i literally she was like let me read it a couple times and then let's yeah. have a call and i was like two times are you sure now you you once you've done it you realize all the different valleys and peaks that go through the process and then you can just trust it yeah like when people say trust the process it's very hard to trust a process that you've only been told about but you do the first time there's a it's a whole leap of faith because People who have been through it are like, no, no, this is the road. This is, you go, yes, you're going to feel like you're going in the wrong direction at some point, but if you just keep going, eventually it gets there. So you do have to have that kind of trust. But then later, it's much easier to trust the process because you're like, you start, and then at some point you finish. Yep. If you just don't quit, at yeah. some point you you finish. Yeah. And and to have that is good. But for me, on this thing, what happened was basically, is like, I just did this book on discipline. And actually, I had a chapter and I was talking about Joyce Carol Oates and she, every time she finishes a manuscript, it sits in a drawer for a year. She sits on it for a year. She thinks about things. She tweaks, you know, she keeps notes, but then she comes back to it in a year. And I remember just going like, that is so cool, but obviously not possible. Right. And then I was just like, if I can't do that or if I can't not write, then how can I have any credibility to talk about discipline? Like, mm. if, I, if I don't have the discipline to take things slow or to pause or to give myself space, then I'm kind of full of shit. And mm. so I took, uh, I'm taking the year, I'm like three months into it. So I'm yeah. still, I'm still like, so like I, ah. I'm still like, yeah, adjusting to the jet lag or whatever yeah. of it. But it's, it's a very different feeling. Yeah. And you could still write. I mean, still writing. I still write the daily emails. I write articles. I still, and I'm researching for the next, but I'm just not, like I should be start, if 
if this book had gone through the editing, then I would be getting ready to start in June, the fourth book in the series. And to just not have that looming in my yeah. mind is both very freeing, but then also very disorienting. Yeah. Because I don't, it, you know, it's like, hey, football season starts at this time and then you report and then this and then, and, you know, that's just not there. Yeah. And you get, you know, you get very used to being in a certain five yeah. or zone. You have a rhythm. Like Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.